Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. We come to you because you alone have the words of life. We come to the ministry of your word because the entrance of your word brings light. We come to you, Father, because you have exalted your word. You have magnified your word above all things. We come to you, Father, because in your word is revealed your will. We come to you, Father, because your word says the world and its desire passes away, but he who does the will of God lasts forever. Speak to us, teach to us, reveal yourself, reveal your will to each one of us, Lord, as we grow in the knowledge of God. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Speak, Father. We, your children, we, your servants, await. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We'll go to the first scripture for today. It's from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were off the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This morning, as we look into the word, I want you to ask ourselves this question. What motivates me? What motivates me? What do I see in the gospel? What do I see in the gospel? See, everybody is motivated by something. Some good, some bad, some neutral. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, you will see, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. He was motivated by something that was good. It was a good cause. A cause is a good thing. But the issue is this. Even the best cause cannot sustain you forever. The two issues with the cause is, what if the cause is achieved? And two, 
What if the cost costs too much? Or it fails. That's what happened to, Moses, uh, to Noah. He was given a warning. Judgment is coming. Save your people. So he built a boat to the saving of his family. How? In faith and in fear. Faith, he believed what God said. Fear, he feared judgment. And he preached the message about righteousness and judgment. But outside his family, no one believed. But once everybody got into the ark, the door was shut, judgment came, the world was cleansed, and the ark rested on dry land. The cause is achieved. He moved into what we call in today's terms, a retired life. No more cause to propel you forward. From builder, he became a farmer. Along with many things, I guess, he planted a vineyard. One day got drunk, cursed a generation, lived another 350 years without any further purpose. Cause is good. But even a good cause will not sustain you. If one the cost is achieved. And then what? Or two. The cost is demands too high a price. You are willing not to pay. Or the cost fails. Look at Lot. He stayed righteous. Positionally he stayed righteous. The Bible is very clear in Peter. But his whole purpose, cost after which he went was to become wealthy and rise in the world and become successful. And the issue is that he achieved his purpose. He became incredibly wealthy, successful, rose to the top in his city, and then judgment came. The problem is when judgment came, he lost everything. And he did not have any more strength left to pursue anything. Because he pursued the wrong thing, achieved it, lost it. So you see his end also. He was made drunk. Noah got drunk. Lot was made drunk, committed incensed, and his life ends in darkness. Okay. So always ask this question. What motivates me? Salvation is a very good cause. Beyond being saved, that is from sin, that is the cause of judgment. Sin will bring judgment. The wages of sin is death. And salvation is basically you are saved from that judgment. It too has plenty of benefits, what we call, many people, it's an insurance policy. That means, when I die, I will go to heaven and not to hell. Salvation is a good cause. That's a good cause. When you die, you should go to heaven. Please don't go to hell. It's not a good place at all. Absolutely not a good place at all. But salvation is not just that. A lot of people see salvation in terms only of the benefits. And uh, they are not motivated any further. But salvation in the Bible is the 
beginning of eternal life. Beginning of eternal life. That's what Jesus said. Anyone who has believed in me has already passed over from death to life. Even if he dies, he will not die. He will live. It's the beginning of eternal life. But again, that is a problem. Because the problem is, how do you see life now? Because the world talks about life in a different way. You know? From telephone companies to everything that is marketed is put across in terms of life to the point an idea can change your life. It will make life better. Everything is connected with life. But salvation is the beginning of eternal life. So how do you see life? Do you see life in terms of cause? I am fighting for this cause. That's how activists arise in the secular world, even in the kingdom of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Just a good cause. What is the cause? Israel is being threatened by a Philistine giant. And God's people are afraid and trembling. And God's honor has to be redeemed. It's a good cause. It's a good cause. It's a good cause. At that point, as a young man, he was very energetic. Young people are the ones. Activists are all. That's why all politicians recruit those kids from colleges. Because they know they have, they can be motivated emotionally to fight for any cause. They don't even think their way through. Whether this cause is worth fighting for. That's how political parties get all the young people in. And those who get in very rarely get out. And I will tell you why they don't get out. Because I grew up in those colleges and I had friends who were part of some militant parties. And I asked them, why don't you leave? They said, we cannot leave. I said, why? They said, this is the way we were got in. Once we got in, as school students in high school, government schools, they sent out, out during strike and told us to stone the buses. And once we had stoned the buses, our cases were registered in the police station. And after that, if we ever leave the party, the cases come back. There was a guy in my class, he said, I got 21 cases in so many police stations, I can never leave. As long as the party is in power, they will help us. You leave us, the cases come back. So cause, young people have to be very, very careful about causes. The causes you fight for should be a cause that has got to do with God and his honor. So when it is God and its honor and it is by faith, God stands up for you. It's a good cause. Many of them, for them, life is not a cause. Life is about achieving whatever you call it in this life. Let us put it in terms of possessions. Okay, whether in terms of things or name, reputation, whatever, whatever, whatever. Luke 12 and verse 15, this is how God says. He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For once life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It can be a thing or it can be a title. You know, there are people who will never stop studying. One degree after one degree. I mean, their, their visiting card, it's not a card. It's a pamphlet. Pursuing about, okay? And that's where they find their life in. 
They find the life in pursuing something. And that is what they pursue. They see life in those terms. So the question is, when Bible says eternal life, salvation is the beginning of the eternal life, how do you see life? Do you see life in terms of causes and you become an activist? Or you see in terms of possessions, that is what for most people is. Or do you see it in terms of relationship? Do you see it in terms of relationship? And in John 17, 3, God puts across life in terms of a relationship. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when you talk about life, you also have to be very, very clear. Lord, help me to see life through your word. Because your word is truth. Your word is truth. And this is the truth. The nature of this word as opposed to the ideas of man is that this is the only thing that is true. Anything that is true is eternal. That is why when people die, we always say that when people die, when they are in the ICU, in the last stages, nobody ever asks, bring my medals and certificates. Let me take a last look. No, nobody says. None of those things. The eyes are looking around to see If those people whom I love are there beside me. That's the only thing the eye looks for. But you don't have to wait for the end of life to understand the meaning of life. So when Jesus puts across life, he puts in terms of relationship. And only who see life in terms of relationship will be able to value what he says. I will never leave you. Never. I'll be with you till the very end. Because you put terms, life. See, to those who are running after possessions and causes, that promise means nothing. See, as a pastor, that is something that happens to us constantly because the calls we get it from lonely people, people who are very ill, from Different places you call. And to all of them, the first thing we say is not about healing or any. First thing we say is that, remember this. You are lonely, but you are not alone. You are not alone. Remember that. You are not alone. So the question is, how do you see salvation? How do you see eternal life? The problem is, if you see salvation as a formula, okay, I want to live my life out over here, but you know what? This is my insurance policy. When I die, I want to go there. So repeat this prayer after me. If you see salvation as a formula, you're going to be miserable in life. The apostles, the Lord, the apostles in the Bible, never put a cross Salvation in terms of a formula. If you look at the first two portions we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, salvation was always presented in terms of a person. This Jesus whom you have crucified, 
God has made him both Lord and Savior. It was not a formula that was given to Paul on the road to Damascus. It was a person. Who are you? I am Jesus of Nazareth. What do you want me to do? How do, so how do you see salvation? Because this will entirely define your entire life, which way you go. One of the reasons people who are actually saved from sin and judgment are so miserable because they are not pursuing the person who is salvation. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Who you have sent. The person. The person. Now today we had worship, and we had getting people to worship. Okay? Jesus said about worship. Remember, I taught you this also earlier. Jesus told about Worship. He said, a time is coming when true worshippers will worship him in spirit and in truth. There are two things there. One is the Holy Spirit. The other thing is truth. That is Jesus Christ. And they are true worshippers. Those worshippers actually don't need any aid to worship. They are not people who just worship at church. They are people whose very life is a worship. Okay? Now we had dance, which is fantastic. Dance is good. But remember what I taught you about dance? The through dances, three dances in the Bible. I don't teach you much about this. I teach all the Northeast congregation because they are a song and dance congregation. The minute you start singing, the sleepiest fellow will come to the front and start dancing. He has no clue what is happening, but he will start dancing. Okay, There are three dances in the Bible. One is the dance of Herodias. That is the dance of flesh. At the end of that dance, the voice of God that is speaking is cut off. Okay? Voice of God is cut off. That's one thing I tell those congregations. When the worship leader is singing, you dance. When the preacher is preaching, you sleep. Your dance was the dance of Herodias. Then there is a the second dance. That's the dance of Miriam. Miriam's dance is when victory happens in your life, you dance. When the victory stops, you complain. She took out her tambourine, all the ladies came and they danced and they sang. It was great. Three days later, they started, why did you bring us here? Why were in their graves in Egypt? The dance has stopped, song is over. That's not the dance which God talks about. There is a third dance which is in the Bible, which is the dance of David. This is not the first time, the second time when the ark is being brought into the temple, into Jerusalem. There is this ark, the presence, the testimony of God in his ordered ways on the shoulders of the priest. And scripture says, one step, two step, three steps, four steps, five steps, six steps. And on the seventh step, what was there? A sacrifice. There was a sacrifice. Every seventh step, they sacrificed an animal. And David couldn't stand anymore. Okay? And that is the key. What did he do? He took off his royal robes. That's the key. He took off his royal robes. I mean, he could have danced in his robes. But he realized there can be only one king. There can't be two kings. And the king is, his presence is that is going on the shoulders of the priest. 
And he took off his royal robe and like an ordinary man, he danced in the presence of God. Why David is so different from other people in the Bible is, David was a man who not only went after the cause of God, he was a man who pursued God. Pursued God. That is salvation. The pursuit of God. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter did not lift a formula. He did not lift an idea how to be saved. He lifted Jesus up. He lifted Jesus up. And Jesus said, if you lift me up, I will draw all men towards you. On the road to Damascus, what happened is, Paul encountered the person of Jesus Christ. New Testament faith is so unique, unlike any other faith, including Judaism, that it is centered on the man, Jesus Christ. Entirely centered on Christ. Judaism will survive and is still surviving without Christ. Because it is based on a law. You take the founder of any religion, take them out, the religion will survive. You take Christ out, there is no Christianity. It is centered on the man, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. The man, the man, the other man, Paul, who most theologians credit for establishing the church, was not a result of systematic theology or intellectual appreciation of God. No. On the road to Damascus, he met a man. An invitation of God from the throne room of God is come, meet me, encounter me, the person. Once he met him, his life changed radically. Now most of us won't have an encounter with Jesus like Paul. But somewhere along the way, everyone must meet Jesus if you want your life to change. Beyond all the things that we do, or beneath all the things that we do, in the name of Christianity, we must touch Jesus. We must encounter Jesus. Otherwise, our life will not change. I'm not saying you will not go to heaven. But you won't be very happy in heaven either. You might miss earth. Because you did not miss Jesus on earth, you won't miss him in heaven if you don't experience him much. I do believe there will be shadow areas in heaven. That's what all the mystics say. It's not the same for everybody. It's only in Zion, in that, in the holy city, God says, my servants will see my face. There is an earth, there is a new heavens, and there is a new city. So you and I have to be very, very careful that in the process of all the things that we do in the name of, let us say, like the Levites, the Jews did in Judaism, we do in the name of Christianity, we should encounter Christ. If we don't encounter Christ, we will end up in the same predicament that they did. They are following everything in the temple. And everything they are doing is pointing to Christ. And there is Mary and Joseph, 40 days old. The king has come into the temple and no 
everybody knows. The king for the first time in physical form has entered into his temple which is built in his name for his glory. Everything that is happening is about him and they have no clue he's there except two people who are driven by the spirit. Nobody. An old man and an old woman. Simeon and Anna. That is exactly what Jesus says when the son of man comes back will he find faith on earth. That's why Paul will say in the book of Corinthians, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, anthema, let you be cursed. The worst curse that can happen to you is to be left behind. Because if you are not waiting for a person, who is the person coming for? Don't reduce Christianity into a formula. It is connected with a person. In the Old Testament, the Levitical law had so many rules, ordinances. But once Christ came, they all lost its meaning. That's what Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, people will take this out of context and say, God is telling us you can eat whatever you want. That's not what we're talking about here at all. They had their prescribed rules and festivals, what to do, what to do, Passover, festival of the the, the seven-day festival of unleavened bread, all these things they had. But after Christ came, this has no meaning. What are you observing Passover for? Because he has come and died. What are you observing the feast of the unleavened bread? It's the Holy Spirit is who cleanses you. He says, this is all the letter, a shadow. You don't pursue the shadow anymore because the person has come. The entire purpose of all the rituals in the Levitical law was a shadow pointing to the real person, Jesus Christ. They were all shadows. The law itself was a shadow. Pointing to the truth that would come. Hebrews 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those same sacrifices which offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The law was a shadow. Thou shalt not kill. Very good. What was a shadow pointing to that? When you meet that person, Jesus Christ, and you follow that person, when his spirit comes to you, the more lordship you give to the spirit, forget murder. You will not lose your temper. You will be set free from anger. That was it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is outside. But when the spirit comes and you pursue that person, you will not even lust. It's taken care of. It's pointing to the truth. One was a shadow. The other was a real thing. And we cannot end up in Christianity again following shadows. We'll be caught in the same trap as them. The temple and all the ordinances were only a shadow. In Hebrews 8 and verse 5, who served the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. He says, it's everything that's happening here is just a shadow. The reality is there. The reality is there. So the reality now is us, the temple. The shadow is what they did. That's what the Bible is talking about. 
But often we Christians, we end up sadly as shadow chasers. You know, shadows do not have the ability to satisfy. It can give you shade. It cannot give you life. It cannot give you life. So that's the first question in the gospel according to John. Jesus asked, when he was pointed out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Remember all the crowds who came to him, he always used to ask, What do you want? 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 And whatever they asked, he gave them. You do not realize his question and our answer is a revealer of our heart. So when John pointed to Jesus, a couple of his disciples, I think one of the most, Andrew started following Jesus. And he turned. He knows who is following him. There may be a crowd over there, but he knows a couple of them are following me. So he stops and he asks this question. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And he asked them a question. Yeah. Can I have the next verse? Jesus stops. He turned, seeing them following. He said to them, what do you seek? What do you seek? He asked them a question. The question he is asking us today too. What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, where do you stay? It's a strange question. Nobody ever asked him that question. Where do you stay? And he said, come and see. And scripture will say, they dwelt with him that night. The next day morning, they go and they say, come see the Messiah. Now we sang the offertory song about evangelism, winning souls. You know why people don't evangelize? It's because they have never stayed with him. They never stayed with him. The people who have stayed with him cannot keep their mouths shut about him. Because they have encountered the person and not a formula. Those who have received things, their testimonies are always about what they received from me. I want to testify about my healing. I want to testify about my promotion. I want to testify about my child. But people who have encountered him and met him, they will always testify about him. Not about what he did to them, about him. So Andrew will go and call his brother Simon and says, come meet him. I believe he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. That is why you cannot go through Christendom as a religion. Because Christianity is centered completely around a person. Jesus Christ. It is not a religion. It is. It may sound redundant, but it is always true. It is a relationship. And unless you encounter him as a person, our lives won't change. Our lives won't change. You have. Then, if it is only an ideology, if it's the ideology of Christianity that is propelling me, then I'm no better than a communist who is propelled by communism and not by Marx. So to that man, when I put my points, he will say, I have my points too. But when I put my person, he has no answer. He has no answer. When I say I follow Christ, he cannot say I follow Marx. He says I follow Marx's teachings. We don't say we follow Christ's teaching. We follow Christ. That's the struggle Christianity faces. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. Why do Jews seek a sign? Because the entire history of Israel in the Old Testament till today is connected with signs. For them, their God is a God of signs and wonder. So whenever anybody comes in the name of Yahweh, they will say, show us the sign. Because they could only associate their God with a sign. The Greeks, representing Gentile philosophers and religion, what do they? They seek after wisdom. They think with the intellect through the soul, they can understand God. If God can be understood through the intellect, he is not God. But we preach Christ. We do not preach the teachings of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. A person who loved man so much, who came and died as atonement, who rose again. But to Jews, Christ is a stumbling block. Stumbling block. That is why Jesus told the Jews, you want a sign? I know you people. I know you are my people. I know you are always after sign. Okay, I will give you one sign. Only one sign I will give you. I give you the sign of Jonah. They didn't want that sign. Three days, three nights. They didn't want that sign. But salvation is about Christ. About knowing Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. But to those who are called both, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why does He, I mean, we would prefer till here, right? And not Him crucified. But He will always bring this over here. Have you noticed he always brings Jesus' crucifixion over there? He says, for me, the authenticity about him as the real God is his crucifixion. Nobody will die for me. Nobody will die for me. No God in history has died for man. They have destroyed men, but they have not died for man. So for him, he says, this is the authenticity of Christ. I preach Christ, and I preach him crucified. In Philippians 3.10, he will again say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says, I want to know him and I want to know his resurrection power. I, can't, I cannot live in, in my own power. I need to experience his resurrection power. And I want the fellowship of his sufferings. Why does he say that? Why? Because that is a wedding vow. Better or worse. Sickness or health. Poverty or prosperity. It's, it's, it's a vow. You cannot know a person if you don't partake of his whole life. You cannot pick and choose. One of the reasons Paul is the person God used to define through a man as to who Christ is, is because of his commitment. He said, I want to know Christ. And that's why the revelation of who God is, who Christ is, who God is through Christ, and who Christ is through Paul. Because a man who completely identified with Christ. You look at, it's, 
interesting about Paul and the teachings. Like, if we had the wisdom of the Greeks, we wouldn't use Paul to write the Bible. Have you ever wondered, Paul, who was a bachelor, who was a bachelor, but almost all the teaching on marriage was written by God through him. Pastor Eric used to call me and say, Pastor... First he was not married, then I'm only recently married. They have called me to go give a seminar on marriage. I said, go do it. Paul also was a bachelor. It's a bachelor who's called to give a seminar. Teachings on marriage, we all learn from Paul. Why? Why? Because he's the man who saw salvation in terms of a relationship. That's why. And the greatest, closest relationship celebrated in life is marriage. There's no closer relationship than marriage ordained by God on earth. Okay? Therefore, that is also the most problematic relationship. If it is good, it is very good. If it is bad, it is very bad. It is when two people are willing to leave everybody And everything else for the purpose of a relationship. Please never forget the first reason for marriage was not children. None of this. None of this. None of the things which we think of. You have to read Genesis 1 and 2 very, very carefully. Genesis 1 is an overview. Genesis 2 is focusing. In Genesis 1 when scripture says he made man In his image, male and female, he made them. It is not talking about the beginning. When God made man, he only made Adam. So Genesis 1.26 is not talking about Adam and Eve when they were made. When Eve was made, it is talking about general creation. So when God made, he only made Adam. Then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now you need to realize what C.S. Lewis Try to show through Narnia is almost, I believe, true. Animals talked. And even the snake walked. Because it's after the curse, God says, you will crawl. So snake probably had limbs and it walked. And the snake probably, all the animals talked. Because when the snake talked to Eve, she wasn't shocked or surprised. So that's what scripture says. He brought all the animals to Adam to see whether he could have fellowship with them. They couldn't. They couldn't. They could talk. They could walk. But they couldn't fellowship. Because they were different kinds. So the first reason of marriage God puts across is this. It is not good for man to be alone. So if you are married... And you are very close to each other. You have no children. You have fulfilled the purpose of marriage. Children are a blessing. Are a blessing. All the people in the Old Testament who longed for a child was connected with the messianic promise. We are not waiting for any messianic promise. The promise has already been fulfilled. Any woman is sitting there thinking you will birth the Messiah. It is not going to happen. It's already happened. So their longing was different. So there, if you are barren, it is meant God has passed over you. 
So they saw barrenness differently. We don't see barrenness in the same way. We don't see. So that's why you have to see the letter and the spirit differently. So in Genesis 2.24, marriage is put over there. The relationship, the first rules of marriage or of relationship is given over there. Therefore, a man shall leave. Leave. Leave whom? His father and mother. Meaning the closest relationship he had on earth all these years, he has to leave. And he's willing to leave. Leave. Everybody and everything else, that is the step one before you can even think about having a genuine relationship. Men leave and parents allow them to go. Why? Because it is divinely sanctioned. That's why you know all these marital fights and all, you hear this constant refrain. Why are you upset? Because your parents interfere too much in our marriage. What does it mean? It means they married you off, but they didn't let go of you. See, these are very difficult concepts in Indian culture. Indian culture is a joined family like a big banyan tree. Everybody lives under the same roof. So when I talk to Hindu parents of our children over here, this is it. You need to understand. They have to leave, to go. It's a very foreign concept for them. Yes, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob lived in tents. But scripture does not say Isaac married Rebecca and took her to Abraham's tent. He took her to his mother's empty tent. The mother is dead. Right? Read carefully. They lived as a community, but they lived separately. Because unless you leave, you cannot cleave. Why I am saying about marriage over here? Because Paul, Holy Spirit through Paul, will put salvation in terms of a marriage. Unless we are willing to leave, we can never cleave to God. We can never pursue a relationship with God. So the first rule is put over there. Why has God put marriage over there and magnified it all? And marriage is the most attacked institution because it's got to do with salvation. Man shall leave. In Genesis 45, 10 and 11, listen, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. Forget your own people also. And your father said, forget, forget, forget. Forget it. Why? Because so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. Okay. Leave. Then the king will desire you. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are and how wonderful you are. If you are clinging onto your father's hand, the king cannot desire you. Both the men and the women, the Bible is very clear about it because it's got nothing to do with a marriage or a home because the marriage represents something bigger in God's plan for mankind. Therefore, all the tests you will face is in relationship. Who is Christ? Who is the believer in Christ? What is the church family? Relationships in home and outside. All these are taught to us primarily by God through Paul. 
Now listen to Paul very carefully in Ephesians chapter 5. Now he comes back there, right? For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then he gives us the reason. This is a great mystery. Poor bachelor has no clue. Okay, so it's a great mystery. But he says, I have revelation. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, the entire institution of marriage established by God from the beginning till today was to reflect, reflect Christ and the church. Why the girl is always prepared, 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 prepared and ready to leave like Rebecca, short notice. Are you believe, will you go with this man? Yes, I will go. When? I'm ready now, tomorrow to go. Why? It is connected with the church and Jesus Christ. This is a great mystery. Marriage is a mystery. Why? Marriage is bigger than any one of us who are married also think. But even that marriage is a shadow. The marriages on earth is a shadow. The substance is Christ. But if you do not know the shadow, you will not know the substance. And if you do not know the substance, you do not understand the shadow. Okay? Now, whatever you hear today, apply it in your marriages. But also see in terms of your person, even if you're unmarried, still you are betrothed to Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter whether you're married or unmarried, it applies to everyone who is saved. Listen, first, okay, the substance and the shadow. Husbands, Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So marriage is put across there in terms of savior and salvation. In terms of the savior and the one who is being saved. So salvation has, marriage has to be seen itself as a process of salvation. And who is the savior there? That's why the only language in the world which has correctly interpreted the name of the husband is Hindi. What is he called? Pati. What does it mean? Savior. Husband is the savior. As. How do you love your wife? How did Jesus love the church? He gave himself to save her. That is only one part. Save her from whom? From the clutches of her parents. Okay? Spiritually speaking, we all belong to our father, the devil. Okay? Honestly, tell him. Honestly, tell him. All our Indian girls, Nari is sitting over here. Isn't life more difficult for you than your brothers? Yeah? What do you say? First thing as you start growing, sit properly, sit properly, sit properly. You never tell that boy, the fellow is running around like a monkey, the mother says nothing, the father says nothing. Girl, sit properly, put your skirt down, put your legs together, no, cover your face. No. Life is difficult, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? These things are not told to the boy. To the boy, half the time, because he's trouble, say, go out and play, go out and play. The girl, stay inside, stay inside. So this girl is sitting there and wondering, Lord, who will save me? 
comes that man. And she is so happy for a few days. And then when she gets married to him, she finds he's no different than her father. Sit properly. So there is a saving. Salvation has three parts. First, he saves us from the penalty of sin. Second, he saves us from the power of sin. That is called sanctification. Only those who have been saved from the penalty of sin can be sanctified. That is why if you have not saved, all the messages which are connected with sanctification will only make you miserable. Only make you miserable. But if you are saved, those messages make sense. So first the husband saves the wife from the clutches of the father. And then he sanctifies her. Look at the next verse. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word, water by the word. So if you actually notice in almost all homes, the primary ministry of the husband to the wife is in this. She does most of the work, but all he does is this. Do this, don't do this. Don't do that, I don't like it that way. It is all this by the washing of the water of the word. Today, of course, feminism has risen, equality, gender equality, parity, and also all has come in. The wife wants the husband to do everything. But that's not his primary ministry. His primary ministry is connected with sanctification. By the washing of the water of the word. Understand? So, he's putting it all across in marriage terms. First is salvation, saved from the penalty of sin. After that, what begins? Sanctification. That's what church Christ does with the church. First he saves her. Saves her. Because to unsaved people, you can't say anything about sanctification. They won't understand it. They won't accept it. They will be miserable. And if they try to sanctify, it will not work. Because you are not saved first. Sanctification. But the problem about sanctification is... Sanctification is, you know, sanctification is not possible unless you surrender. It's not possible. Like my mother is sitting here, she knows it very well. Bhutani, you grow up, water is very, very cold and you will say, you know, go, have a bath and go to school. The problem is when you go from the bath, from the bathroom, you have to cross the kitchen. And when you are crossing the kitchen, you are suddenly stopped. Because what do young boys who are 6 and 7 year old ask to have a bath in cold water do? They wash their legs and they wet their hair and they will go and try to run your cot on the way. Because nobody likes sanctification. <laughs> my mother used to call my father Acha, which means father. The only thing that needed me to rapidly go back and have a proper bath was her call, Acha. That was enough. Back there, sanctification took place. <laughs> Which is called in the Bible, the fear of the Lord shall keep you from sinning. That is actually the role of the father. And today we have degraded fatherhood and sh- there is no fear of the father anymore. The fathers are missing in the first place. They have been driven out. But that was the job of the father because he kept the children in line and he really very rarely had to act 
Because that was the way they were revered in the house. So you need to go back to the Bible to see, understand from a home how God works out salvation. Because that family over there is a representative of how God does his work. So you cannot be sanctified unless you are submitted. You cannot be. Nobody who does not submit can be sanctified. Let me ask you this question. You are all in the church. You are all seated over here. Many people who came different times when they saw how long the word was, they ran away. Because they refused to be surrendered. But those who have stayed, submitted to the ministry of the word, without you realizing you have changed and you are changing. You cannot sit at that parapet over there and be sanctified. You have to make a choice to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice under the ministry of the word. Okay, so God is putting it over there. Sanctification is not possible without submission. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As Unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Okay? So he's putting it up. Remember, at the end he says, it is a marriage, it's a mystery, I'm talking about church and the Christ. So he uses marriage, and he uses Christ's relationship with church, and says, it is about relationship. So, you cannot be sanctified unless you are, you can be very active in the church and not be submitted at all. And only those who are submitted actually get sanctified. Activity does not mean submission. All the priests in the temple were active. One little boy called Samuel was submitted. Therefore he was sanctified and scripture says the word of the Lord came to Samuel and the word of Samuel went to Israel. One man sanctified. Everybody was in the temple. All busy. Busyness does not mean anything in the kingdom of God unless there is surrender first. And that is something we ask of God constantly, Lord, teach me to surrender. And it is with this people struggle. But if you understand, you understand what is God's purpose, the women, married women sitting over here and men sitting over here, understand right in my home, God is trying to work salvation and I'm fighting him. God says, don't fight. This is not temporary. This is eternal. What happens here will reflect in eternity. And verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ. Is the church actually subject to Christ in all things? Yes. Should be. Whether it is or not is another thing. But positionally, is it subject to everything? Yes. Let the wives be to their own husbands in Everything. In everything. See, when you read these things, don't get mad. Don't bring ideology and all. That's why I said, unless you surrender to God, you cannot receive the word. If I were a woman, I look into this and say, you said it, that's fine with me. I have no issues. I may have issues with my husband, but I have no issues with you. And because I don't have issues with me, I will submit. Because this is not my husband's word. This is your word. And on the road to Damascus, Lord, in my road to Damascus, I met you. And I heard on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus Christ, whom you have crucified, God has made what? 
not savior first unless you receive the lordship of jesus christ christ cannot work in your life christ is the salvation outworking but lordship comes first wherever you have submitted he has saved you wherever you have not submitted he cannot save you lord and christ understand that lord and christ and if you keep on surrendering as the knowledge of god increases the bible says in hebrews 7:25 he can save you to the uttermost uttermost that's how we have to see salvation in terms of a relationship let's continue further so sanctification is not possible without surrender at any level as a child as a single person as a married person at every level a man cannot be sanctified by god unless he surrendered to god it's not possible it's not possible and what is the third part of salvation come on children salvation penalty of sin gone second power of sin gone and then one day in heaven we are away from the presence of sin what is that called glorification what is glorification there is no presence of sin at all everybody starts reflecting the glory of god there is no sin to cover it up this body is a body of sin inside is the treasure outside is the clay that there clay is gone only treasure glorification why no presence of sin at all so salvation has three things one is penalty of sin second is power of sin continuously beating fighting the power of sin and the third we are away from the presence of sin that's when we say we are glorified but even that has to be manifested on earth shadow substance shadow here substance there so let us see glorification the third part first corinthians 11 is actually talking about that let's go to there but i want you to know the head of every man is christ the head of woman is man and the head of christ is god now he brings it back again okay remember this is all written by a bachelor okay but he has revelation head of woman is man head of man is christ head of christ is god every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head next one every woman who prays or prophesies with a head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved okay this is the big area of conflict in the past 50 years but let's look at it very very carefully there is headship now it's not talking primarily about headship connected with sanctification it is talking about something else look at verse 7 for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of god it's got to do with glory it's got to do with glory it's got to do with glory who's man god says you reflect the glory of christ so i should not cover my head should not cover my head why because i reflect the glory of god the glory of christ now come to verse 15 but if a woman has long hair it is see they confuse these two 
they immediately think that, oh, hair is covering. No, God says, no, hair is not covering, hair is your glory. Hair is your glory. Hair is your glory. In the house of God, when you come, who receives glory? Only Christ. So man reflects the glory of God. God says, don't cover your head. Don't cover your head. Why? You shut out the glory of God. Woman, cover. Why? Because that is her glory. But your glory is man. You don't reflect the glory of man in the house of God. You only reflect the glory of God. So here is a man with his head uncovered. And here is a woman with her head covered. What are they reflecting? The glory of God. Now this has got to do with glorification. This is, doesn't have to do with sanctification. So God puts it all together in terms of relationship and says, Do you see the salvation story being played out every day in your presence? Glory covered or glory revealed? Do you see it happening? Do you see sanctification taking place in your homes? Do you see glorification taking place in the church? Do you see salvation taking place on the streets? The unsaved are saved outside. They are sanctified inside. Today we have made churches into places of salvation. That's why pastors are not able to preach. Because every day they have to save people. But the church was not a place for unsaved people. Church was a place where saved people, baptized people gathered for sanctification. When we change God's order, the church becomes a very confusing place. What is this? Should I evangelize or should I teach? That's why you look at this huge, 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 huge mega churches and listen to their word. Most of it is simple milk evangelism because they cannot teach them. Because half the crowd is not saved. And we call it a church. God says that is not a church. That is a crusade within walls. It's not a church. Church is my family, a set of people who have received forgiveness for their sins. That's my family who came through the waters of baptism, meaning they are separated unto me. Who have made a covenant with me in baptism. They have left and come. They can be taught. And this is the struggle of the average man. Now go back to Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to know the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. He brings it again in terms of relationship. Who is the head? Head is Christ. Who's? You see, you had the other pulpit yesterday, right? Let us imagine this is not a see-through pulpit. It's a wooden pulpit over there. And everyone who is listening to me, basically, what are you watching? My head. Right? That's why God put the mouth in the head and the eyes in the head, the nose in the head and the ears in the head because it is through this that you sense and you give out conversation. Who is Christ? The head. If Christ is the head, how do I see Christ? That is the key. The verse on which the church was founded. Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is Christ? The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him, 
all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the Preeminent. Are you getting it? You ask, I think as far as my medical knowledge goes, how do normally children get born? Head first. He's the head. And if he is the head, the first thing the church, whether you are a male part of the church or a female part or a child part, the first thing you have to realize is man is the head out of a woman, but the head of man is Christ. In that case, Christ has to receive Three eminence in all things. That's how you pursue a relationship. How do you pursue a relationship with Christ to see that he receives preeminence in everything? Are you getting it now? Put this in context with Ephesians 5.22. Wife, submit your husbands in all things. Church, Christ has to receive preeminence in all things because he's putting in the terms of a marriage and says man stands in the place of Christ, the wife stands in the place of the church. And if the church is in the place of a wife and a man is in the place of Christ, Christ should receive preeminence in all things. Unless we see that, we will not understand the purpose and pursue our salvation. Preeminence means centrality. That's why poor Galileo had to go to prison, recant everything because he checked out science and I found actually that earth is not the center of this universe. It is the sun. The Catholic Church misinterpreted the Bible completely and said you are a heretic. Earth is the center of the sun. So humanism began there. But today we know sun is the center of the solar system. Everything revolves around it. What does it mean for Christ to have preeminence? He is central to everything we do. Centrality. He is the song, as Sharon taught us long time back ago from the book of Ezekiel. He is the wheel within the wheel. There is a wheel with spokes, but in the middle there is another wheel. All the spokes are connected to this wheel. If this wheel goes, everything falls apart. He is the wheel within the wheel. He is the central figure. And that's the question we have to ask. How real is my salvation? How have I progressed in my salvation? Is Christ the central person in my life? That's why Paul was different. It took years and years and years for Peter and the others for Jesus to become the center in everything. Paul, it didn't. It didn't. The minute he met Jesus, he had an encounter with Jesus and he realized Jesus is the center of everything. Scripture says once he received his sight, straight away he went and preached Christ. Preach Christ. Not a formula. Preach Christ. That's what the Bible is talking about. Is he preeminent in our life? We are walking towards it, but we have to be very, very clear that in our relationship, it works out. So God says, what does God say? Work it out in your family so that you understand. I have left the shadow here so that you understand the substance. Wives, your centrality in your home is 
not you, it's your husband. Children, the centrality in your home is the father. Remember that. Remember, focus that way. Focus that way so that you will understand the head of the woman is the man. And the head of the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. So suddenly children see that the head of the woman is the husband and the head is the father. They see this working out in the family and when they come in to know the Lord, it's very easy. It's very easy. They understand there is order in the kingdom. This is the order followed at home. It's the order followed in the kingdom. Because the home cannot be different from the kingdom. But therefore the enemy comes and attacks the home. Because when the home falls apart, it's very difficult for a generation to rise up and understand salvation and grow in their salvation. So they only understand salvation in terms of forgiveness of sins and not beyond. And receiving things from God. That is Children, how do small children, all the little children relate to their parents? They relate to their parents only in terms of getting things from their parents. Daddy brings chocolate, manchu papa. Papa is the best, my papa is the best. Get a cycle, my papa is the bestest. They create all these words. Every compliment you get from a child is connected with things. Parents are happy because they know it's a child. The child never becomes a young man spiritually. Never becomes a young man spiritually. And there are so many children in the kingdom of God who have never grown further and see God as from whom you receive things to God as the centrality of your life. Centrality of your life. That's what God is talking about. Let's look further to see how it works out. When Jesus is preeminent, you understand why Jesus is called not king. He's called the king of kings. He's called the Lord of lords. Why Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Because what is central is exclusive. That's why on the day of Pentecost, the apostles brought Jesus to the center of it and said in Acts chapter 2, we saw 34 and 36, this Jesus whom you crucify. Yeah. David did not ascend to into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore let all the house of Israel surely know God has made this Jesus whom? Both Lord and Christ. He's the central. Now let's get back. Okay, don't get... Carried away thinking about marriage, but imagine marriage is a shadow of the kingdom of God. But that is what God is talking about in First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. So when you read Peter 3, 1 to 6, in the context of the church and the context of the marriage, in the context of the marriage, the woman is the woman, the man is the man. In the context of the church, we are all the woman. We are all the woman. We are the church. He is the man. He is the husband, we are the spouse. See what it says. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands. So why does it every place the Bible mentioned, submit to your own husbands? Why? Because God knows a woman finds it easier to submit to another man than to her husband. All the women who work in offices, yes sir, yes sir, three bags full sir. Let the woman come back home. She struggles. But submitting to your boss is not going to guarantee eternity. 
It is not going to guarantee sanctification. That is asked of the man and the woman. Submit to your manager, your boss. It is not exclusive to the woman. Therefore, the Bible constantly says, don't feel so good because you submitted to somebody else's husband in your office working place. He says, this is where it loves. Submissive to your own husbands. Why does he, what does he say to church? He says the same thing to church. You go to the world, you see an advertisement, immediately you have submitted, you have gone and given your offering and bought it because it's very easy to submit to somebody else's husband, difficult to submit to Christ. That's what Pastor Sharon was talking about. Look at the, at the stadiums, Christians sitting over there. Oh my God, IPL, worship is going. How easy it is to submit to somebody's husband. A demonic realm operating behind every entertainment media. How easy it is to go to a movie theater, sit there at the edge of a teeth, never take your eyes off the screen, have your Pepsi and popcorn, and yet struggle to sit in church because it is easy to submit to somebody else's husband and not your own. That's how you have to see it. Lord, I am an adulterer at heart in my spirit. I constantly submit to somebody's husband and not to my own. That's how change takes place. Because unless we acknowledge, he cannot save us. So don't look at it exclusively in terms of marriage alone, but see it in terms of the context of the church. Because these are all scriptural principles. Scriptural principles. That's what he's talking about. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe, this is one thing I give everywhere I go when unbelieving, unbelieving wives who come alone, says my husband doesn't believe, what should I do? I said, God has written very clearly about you in First Peter 1. Zip your lip. Don't say a word. You want your husband saved? Don't say a word. Let him see Christ in you. He will get saved. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So what is he telling the church? Church, you are in the church, but you go out to different, different places. There you have unbelieving bosses over you. Let them see your reverend conduct. And they will believe your God is God. I believe Potiphar saw the reverend conduct of Joseph as, Joseph as opposed to the other slaves and said, his God is with him. I believe the prison warden saw this man's reverent conduct in his relationship with his authorities and said, this man's God is with him. And the, the, your teachers have to see that in you. Your employers have to see that. And they will say, you know what? There is something different about these people. These are fundamental principles in the kingdom of God. And knowledge and salary and none of these things have anything to do with it. Nothing. All these are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what God is talking about is the truth. And that's what he's talking about. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And verse 3, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You have to see what I'm saying is that when God writes in his word, because he created you and me, God has no gender confusion. Absolutely no. So when you read it, if you are a man, what is writing to the man, receive as a man. Because Lord, you are right, I am wrong. If you are a woman, receive it as a woman. And as a church, receive it as a church. 
If you constantly look into the church in instructions given, whenever it comes to women, whether it is any letter to written any church, immediately they come to outward things to the woman. Be careful about your dressing. I know I made you that way, but I did not make you that way. You became that way. You're very fussy about your clothing. Peter will say that. Don't focus so much on the outside. Yes, I know you can be late to church because you took two hours to pick your dress and then get into it. Because so many items had to match. And your husband was waiting outside in the car to catch. When is she coming? Rather, let it be inside manner of the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him. And don't laugh. That's exactly the position of your husband in your house. He is the Lord of your life. And that's why Sarah was the only woman mentioned by God and approved by God among wives. Not Rebecca. Rebecca did not accept the lordship of Isaac after a point. Rachel fought with him every day. Only Sarah accepted the lordship of her husband. And God says, do it. Your sanctification, even if he's a fool, it doesn't matter. Abraham was very foolish at times. Did very fearful, stupid times. You see, you do good and not afraid with any... You look at a man and a woman. Abraham is here. Famine has come. Getting ready to Egypt. He's so fearful about his life. And he says, please say, you're my sister. Actually, her life is at stake. And she says, yes, my Lord, without any terror. Who is the fearful and who is the fearless? The man is fearful. The woman is fearless. And God sanctifies her. Look at it. He's fearful. She's fearless. And God's hand is over her, protecting her in the palace of Egypt and in the palace of Abimelech because she's fearless. Why is she fearless? She's fearless because she has come under God's order. Therefore, there is no fear. When people step out of God's order, fear comes in. Abraham was fearful because he was stepping out of God's order. And they were both going in the same direction. But she stepped into God's order and she was fearless. Without any fear. These are studies which God is giving us about how the church should function. And you learn it from a marriage. So when God is talking about a man, receive it as a man. And God is talking about a woman, clothing, 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 clothing. Realize it should, every time you go shopping, a warning bell should go. Peter said it in First Peter chapter 3, and God was speaking to me, not to us, to me. Listen to what Paul says in Timothy. He's talking about worship. He's talking about prayer. About praying for leaders, praying for authorities. And then, yeah. I decide therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Yeah. Don't take it off. Without wrath and doubting. So when he talks to man, first thing he says is, hey man, I know. I know you're always irritable. I know you're very short and burnt. So you guys deal with your anger and deal with your arguments. Oh, men can argue about a cricket ball, one turn and oh my God, they can go into any kind of argument. Okay, he says, you know guy, lift up holy hands. Okay? Your issue is with anger and with arguments. And then the next line is about women praying. What does he say? Yeah, next one. In like manner also women, and this has got to do with prayer. 
But he says, you know what? One stumbling block with women's prayer life is their outward looks. They're so worried about their outward looks. And for the sake of looking good outwardly, they will waste time. And time is precious. Every day is like a slice of a bread. One slice gone, one slice gone. Once by today evening, seventh is gone, eighth begins. And he says, this is your, like mine also, women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good. This is actually a chapter on prayer. But he knows what are the stumbling blocks to our spiritual life. So if you are a man, you say, Lord, I need to deal with anger. And I need to deal with arguments. So what do you do? As soon as an argument begins, walk away. And zip your mouth. Deal with issues. And Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me to deal with this. Because it affects my prayer life. And if you're a woman, you have to look and say, these are real issues. It's a general principle. You may be free from it. But say, Lord, I am a woman. You made me and you know me best. And then, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. So you have to realize, this applies to a woman, it applies to the church. If a church has to learn, a church can only learn in silence, in submission. In submission. Otherwise you cannot learn. You cannot have your mind full of cacophony going on and then be listening to the word. You cannot. Many of you are not able to listen to at all. It's not because you are not able to listen. It's because you listen to so many things through the week. And most of the things were unnecessary. Necessary things you have to listen. I'm not sure anybody sitting here who is not able to listen is thinking about Galileo's astronomy or Einstein's formula. No, nothing. You are thinking about the last check, 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 what you happened over there. Nobody is sitting here worrying about math or physics or chemistry. Nothing of that is crossing your mind. What is crossing your mind is if you are honest, it is junk. Which you chose to eat into your mind. That's the issue with the church. The church is that the church doesn't come on a Sunday morning or any day, whichever country it is, prepared to listen. Because listening itself is a preparation. In silence. In silence. If you were loud till the moment you went to sleep and loud from the time you woke up, where is silence in your life? Because Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Where is silence? So the These are things the church has to learn. Lord, if I have to learn, I am part of the bride. I am a woman in gender when it comes to the church. I have to be silent and submit to be able to learn. Otherwise, I won't receive your teaching. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Which letter it is written? Timothy. Written to Timothy. This is not a letter written to Corinthian, because when you return to Corinthian, they will bring culture over there, known the Corinthian. This is not written in Corinthian. This is written to Timothy. And Timothy is not a woman, he's a man. He's the next bishop who has to ordain the next set of leaders, so he's giving him structure. And when God gives structure, he will go all the way into history, as far as he can go back. What's the structure given over there? For Adam was formed first, and Eve. He goes all the way to the beginning. Doesn't even stop with the law. Goes beyond Noah, beyond the flood. He crossed the flood also. Went right to Genesis chapter 2. And says that's the reason. The woman, Adam was made first. And the woman was made after. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was 
deceived and fell into transgression. Don't get upset about it. But the fact is that the women are easily deceivable. Why? Because you are emotionally made. Oh, poor thing. Finished. Wallet gone, time gone, bread gone, kapada gone, everything gone. Poor thing. The poor thing will take it, run away and little later there is no poor thing. You have become the poor thing. That's how the devil did not come to Adam. He came to Eve. And Eve was not even in a fallen state. So Eve, not in the fallen state, the woman was more open to deception. How much more in the fallen state? That's where the gender confusion has been created by this world system under Paul so that men have become like women. And women have become like men. And women are taking over, yet their nature hasn't changed. What do you think the gender thing is all about? Fluidity and junk they are talking about. It is the final attack of the enemy. So he has prepared the place for what the Bible talks about, the woman riding the beast. Don't fall for all this. Get your theology understanding from the word of God and not from popular culture. Because that's what the Bible is talking about. That is what it is talking about here. So what does the church learn? The church learns, don't focus outside. Focus inside. And look at the word of God to judge yourself. Word of God to judge yourself. The word of God is a mirror. James says it's a mirror. Learn from Christ. Learn from? Don't teach Christ. Learn from Christ. And Much of the church's ministry is received from Christ in Silence. Through it all, the concept about preeminence should be central to everything. Is Christ central to my life? How does Christ become central to my life? Psalm 138 verse 2. I didn't give it, but that is how we go back. And that's what the Spirit will I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. For your loving kindness and your truth. And after that, for you have magnified your word above all your, above all your name. Because many will come, say, Lord, Lord, we did so and so in your name. And what will he tell them? You did it in my name, but you did not magnify my word. My word, my son was not central in your decisions, in your life. He did not get preeminence in what you did. He and the Word are the same. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Understand that. That is why I say, this is the most neglected book in the world. Most printed book, most neglected. And one of the reasons people neglect is is not because they cannot understand, but they are not willing to pay the price to understand. What is the price to understand? Surrender. Silent submission, you will get. You don't submit, he doesn't speak. It's just another book. If this is just another book, there are better interesting books around. All drama and masala and everything is in it. But if you submit, then all the other books lose its relevance and its interest. 
So without surrender, there is no revelation. Is Christ preeminent in my life? Therefore, the attack is on the shadow. The church is a shadow. The family is a shadow. Everything is a shadow because the substance is Christ. So the home is attacked. The gender roles are attacked. Everything is attacked. And you have a total confuse. Because if the family falls apart, which is the basic unit, the whole structure collapses. What is the basic unit? It is the family. Like if your families hadn't broken, would many of you be sitting here as orphans? No. Why are you sitting here as orphans? Because the family broke down. But God did not ordain orphans. He ordained families. There's so many from broken homes sitting over here. Why? Because the home was broken. But yet God's concept is what? A home, a family. God is a family man. That is why he is called father and Jesus is called the son. And look at Ephesians 4. What does scripture say? Yeah. Three. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the next verse also. 14 and 15, I think. What does it say? From whom? The whole family. In heaven and on. So the family on earth has to reflect the family in heaven. That is the substance. This is the shadows. So scripture says, the head of Christ is God. Jesus came fully man and fully God. So Jesus was the last Adam. Adam, first Adam and the second Adam. In the first Adam when God created, who was there? He was male and female. Right? Then he separated Eve out. He was male and female. In the second Adam, he was male and and female. Not gender-wise, masculine, sexual. Don't misunderstand me. Don't say I'm teaching something new, but I'm telling you he was the second Adam. In him is you and me, both male and female. So as male, what did he do? He looked at us as the husband. As female, he submitted to his head, the father. Do you understand that? As the male, we are his wife. His bride, his redeeming. As the female, he, his head is who? God. So he showed both to man and to woman. Man, this is how you submit to your father in all things. Man, this is the way you need to save your wives. And as a wife, he says, did you learn from submission? This is how you submit in all things. And I will not take my head's glory. Father, I have brought glory to you on earth. Now glorify me. That's what a woman does. She never takes glory from her husband. Until recent days. When systems started changing. That is why a woman in the Bible, or till recently, when she was unmarried, her name was connected with her father. And when she got married, her name was connected with her husband and not herself. Because her identity was always connected with two men, her father and her husband. Because it's got to do with something eternal. You and I don't have an identity because corporately we are female, we are baptized into the name of Jesus. It's his identity we carry. We don't have a testimony of our own. Our testimony is the testimony of our spiritual husband, that of Jesus Christ. For that has the body of Christ, the bride, we give him preeminence primarily as an individual and as a corporate in all things. That is the purpose of salvation. 
That is how we reach the end of salvation. So the question we constantly ask is, have I given him centrality in this area in my life? Have I given him? Because the problem is, the devil is after to take Jesus as the focus of our life. So the question to ask is, it's not what, but who is central to your life? Because the devil is very, very crafty. You can put good things as the center of your life. Career, family, health, ministry. These are all good things. Or you can put bad things. Alcohol, drugs, sex, food, addictions. Or you can put neutral things like sports, entertainment, even shopping. But if you look at all of this, if Christ is not the center, it is Self-centered. Soon, it becomes life-controlling. That's why I keep telling pastors, does Christ control your ministry or your ministry controls you? Can you sit down when he says sit down and do nothing? If ministry was that was control Elijah, he wouldn't have sat there at chariot eating two meals a day. He would have said, no, I'm so full of revelations. I need to go and preach. I cannot sit still. Oh Lord, your fire is shut up in my bones. No, that's just an excuse because your ministry is your centrality, not the Lord who told you to sit down. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. There's one of the reasons I always have said, Lord, Lord, I will not knock on a single door saying, invite me. Every door that happens will happen without me asking. You will open it for me. Then I know you are sending me that I am not going on my own. And every door in 25 years that has opened has opened without me knocking. Giving him the right to open the doors. Because I want to be very sure he's sending me and I'm not going on my own. Not going on my own. That's why not an SMS, not a pamphlet, not a screen, never printed for or from our side ever in 25 years. Because I want to be very sure, Lord, I'm doing it for you. I'm not doing it for any other reason. Because if you don't have preeminence, then how can the church have? Because you gave us that words all those years ago saying, this church shall be built on it. When you finish your race on our GTC, you would have given preeminence to us in all things. What is Good for the whole is good for the part two. So the, to, to the disciple, preeminence is the principle that he works on. Not just at looking at the good and the neutral. Marriage, family, career, ministry are all good things. But the disciple cannot have a good thing as your centrality because the call of the disciple is this in Luke 14. And great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not, hate is good thing. Mother, good thing. Wife, good thing. Children, good thing. Brothers, good thing. Sisters, good thing. And his own life, good thing. But if he doesn't deny it, you cannot have me as the center of your life. Because the issue is not about good things. The issue is who has the center of your life. Who has preeminence in your life. They are not bad people. They are all good people. They are all good things which we all honor, call to honor and love. But he said not above me. Because if you choose to love any good thing above me, I lose preeminence in your life. And what happens is the work of redemption stops in your life. 
The work of salvation stops in your life. Then I cannot do anything more. Because Abraham put his father above God. And the work of salvation stopped in his life. And God had to wait until his father died. Then the work continued. Eli honored his children more than God. And God said, you know what's going to happen? Going to happen. Your family will just look at that second Samuel, uh, first Samuel, chapter 2, and then we'll go to communion. 2, 29 to 33. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And then, behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. You will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart and all the dissonance of your house shall die in the flower of their age. He's saying, you know what he's telling? He's saying, listen, listen here, listen to me, you old man, Eli. Because you honored your children and put them as the center of your life, none of your children will grow to old age. They will all die young. And if they survive, they will only bring grief all the days of your life because your centrality from moved from God to your children. That's what he's saying. And that's the truth. That's happening. So be very careful about principles of the kingdom of God. Yes, you have all small babies and they're all cute. They're all so lovely and so wonderful but shaped in iniquity and born in sin. Don't make them into an idol. One day when the Lord will never call you and realize your spiritual life is idol. It's not moving anywhere. And the call of disciples is the centrality of Christ in your life. And that was Paul. We all love our children, but our children are not idols. We all love our spouses, but our spouses are not our idols. We all love our parents, but our parents are not our idols. That's what happened. That is why the only one who is mentioned over there as God taking alive is Enoch. And he was taken along. Why? Because the walk of Enoch with God proves to you Christ was the center of his life. Christ had preeminence in every area of his life and he was taken up alive. God said, come with me. And he didn't take his wife or his children with him. Just took him alone. And the raptured church will be a set of people who have allowed Christ to have preeminence in all things. The rest, God says, you come through the fire. Come through the fire. I'll sanctify you. Don't worry. I will sanctify you. Tribulation and all doesn't bother God. Because he's got his hand over everything. So tribulation saints also will come through. People will say it is only Israel and all this thing. And I don't believe it is Israel and all. I believe the Laodicean church will be spit out by God right into the tribulation. They will come through tribulation sanctified. When you go through tribulation, suddenly you will realize you go to the underground churches in the Muslim world and all. Children don't acknowledge father. Father don't acknowledge children because the father is on the other side. The child is with Christ. Cannot even go home and tell you are converted because the father will kill you. Suddenly you will realize what is true and what is not true. Let a girl say that I have become Christian. You won't find her dead body also. It's gone, disappeared. 
So suddenly you understand the centrality of family and relationship in terms of God. So if it is true there, just because we don't experience this, it is true here too. The centrality of Christ in our life. That is what we are coming to. That's what all communion is all about. One body, many parts. One body. Yes, you will get different pieces, but it was one whole. It was baked together in the oven. Went through the fire together to get you different pieces. It did not come into different, different pieces into the furnace and become whole. It went to the furnace hole and came out and says, take part of it. And it is the body of Christ. I will not water down the gospel. It's not going to happen. God help me. This is the truth. This will define our life. Not man. Not the fashions that is happening around. But the word of God. Because it alone has the power to save us. It alone has the power to sanctify us. It alone has the power to glorify us. Nothing else. So this morning quickly as we go to, to communion. I request the elders to come. All those who are married, work on your marriages. You're working on your salvation. You have a practical there in your homes. Theory at church. So, Lord, we believe we are part of the whole and you are the head, one body, one Lord. And as we partake of the emblems of Father, I pray it will heal us, it will sanctify us, it will strengthen us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. So this morning, as we come to the close of the service, The question we need to go back with in our hearts is who is at the center of my life? Is it Christ? Or is it somebody or something else? And if it is Christ, how do I get to know him? 
more and more so that the lordship of Jesus Christ is actually established in our lives. That's what grace is for. That's what the Bible says. He came with grace and truth. See, I can only teach, but I can make decisions only for myself. You cannot make a decision for anybody else. Jesus did not make even a decision for his disciples. He taught them. They chose. One of them decides to walk away. Demas chose to walk away from Paul. So it's a choice we make. Our purpose is to teach. If you're married, marriage reflects what is happening in heaven. And we work towards it. We have a model and we work towards the model. Because if you don't have a model, you do not know what to work at. And it is it is part of your sanctification. And to the husband, scripture says, you sanctify your wife literally by the washing of the water of the word. And washing, it says, you are not a fire hose trying to put out a fire. There also water is used. You know what? In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew. And showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. He says, sanctify. You're not putting out fires. And if fires are there, it's because you didn't sanctify in the beginning. So men be very careful how God says deal. And women be very careful because your both your sanctification is connected to what God has asked. Different genders, what? And what if you're unmarried? Like, again, I'm not making choices for all the unmarried ones. In the new covenant, the question is not, Lord, who should I marry? No. The centrality of Christ, the question is, is Lord, should I marry? First. And if he says yes, who should I marry? Not who should I marry, but first, what is the question? Should I marry? 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, and we will wrap it up quickly. I want it to be without care. Who is? Unmarried. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He was unmarried. So the first question is, Lord, do you want me to marry or not? You are the center of my life. Honestly, Lord, I am not alone. I don't need any more anybody added. I'm, I'm, I'm fully satisfied with you. But in your purpose, if you feel you need to add somebody into my life because it furthers the purpose of your kingdom, add. If not, I am fine. Because I have put you up there, right in the center of my life. You have preeminence in everything. I should not have a need in my life which is not ordained by you. Adam and Eve is a different story. Eve was alone. Adam was alone. I am not alone. Because you said, I am not alone. Paul was a man who had God at the center of his life and his desire, not command. Look at the seven and the one which I gave you after that. Seven and verse seven. I wish that all men were even as I myself. Is I wish. Imagine going on mission with ten bachelors. The only ones who will trouble you is the mother's bete, khana khaya kya. But no wife, no children to worry about. You are on mission. What he's talking about. Because the centrality is Christ. He doesn't say there's anything wrong in marriage. Absolutely nothing wrong in marriage. Marriage is good. Christ is excellent. 
And they're choosing the excellent over good. And if Christ says it is not good for you to be alone, then that is what is excellent. Whatever comes, I choose Christ. That's what he's talking about. Like I said, I'm not making choices for you. You make your own choices. But to teach is my job. So the whole question today is, is Christ center to your life? Central to your life. That's, he says don't run away. He's very careful about it. He's, he says don't run away with it. He says so if you are married, don't try to be single. And if you are single, don't try to be married. Just put Christ in the center of your life. He says there are crackpots who will look at it and say, ha, this is the words I was looking for. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to be single. You go to your father's house. Go, 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 go. He says, no, 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 I'm not telling you any of those things. Don't make excuses and try to put God there where he's not there. He says it all in that, look at this man who actually defines marriage in terms of our relationship with God. So whether you are a child, you can be like Samuel. Whether you are a young man, you can be like Joseph and Daniel. Or whether you are an older man, you can be like Moses. Who turned his back to the treasures of Egypt took the reproach of Christ. Why? Not because what he was promised, but because he saw him who was invisible. Salvation is about a person. It's not about anything else. One day we will realize whole of heavens is actually full of Jesus. That is what salvation is about. So he says, start enjoying me now. Don't get fooled by the enemy. Don't put any of these things first. In his proper order, you will be able to enjoy everything. He says, if you put your wife first, your wife will break your heart. If you put your children first, I promise you, he just said to Eli, your children will break your heart. If you put your church first, I promise you, church will break your heart. But if you put me first, I promise you, I will guard your heart. I'll guard your heart. And I'll walk with you till the end. Till the end. Till the very end. I'll walk with you. You'll never be alone again. Never, never alone again. Shall we stand? Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. Help us daily first to surrender. And then study your word. That's what your word teaches Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. But by the renewing of your mind, you will know what is the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Help us, Lord, to surrender and to learn of you. Each passing day, help us to know Christ is increasing and we are truly decreasing. Less and less of us, more and more of you. And above all, Lord, teach us to delight in you. To truly say from our heart, you are my delight. You are the joy of my life. What you say about us, help us to say about you. The thoughts that I have towards you cannot be counted. He who touches you, touches the apple of my eye. I have engraved you in the palms of your ha- my hands. These are all things which you told about us. 
But Father, today in the light of today's message, we want to say this about you. That your face is always before my eyes. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Take us through this week. Take us through this month. Help us to keep you up there at the top. That you have free eminence in all things in our lives, in our church. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. We bless your holy name, Lord. And we proclaim, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, Lord. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen.